Hey there, welcome to this excellent church. We believe the word of God is the charter of our lives and God's way to reshape values and reconcile men to himself. We hope this message brings edification, exhortation and comfort. Be blessed. Okay, praise God. Alright, so I expect this to be brief. I always expect things to be brief. It ends up not being brief. But I expect this one to be brief. So help me God. So we're going to continue from where we stopped on the character of God. Um, so I, I think I want to end this today because I think it is best to um, to just lay it bare that oh, this is who God is, though, according to what was revealed to Moses and to the Old Testament saints, and of course even the New Testament saints, right? We just lay it bare, and such that we can now begin to build on it in our meditations, right? One of the things I noticed today is that there will be questions that will want to come up with regards to the character of God. Um, for example, if God will, if God forgives sins, and at the same time, it will not leave the guilty unpunished, what's the balance of that? Like, how does that work? Right? Of course, it's simple. I think we should even discuss it at the end of this, that, you know, what, what God revealed to Moses was that he forgives wickedness, Right, but it now says again that it will not leave the guilty unpunished. But if he forgives wickedness, hasn't he left the guilty unpunished? <laughs> Do you get? So um, there are things like that that we will notice as we begin to speak. How I knew was that I was having a conversation with someone, and then as we were just discussing this, I realized that there are a few things that um, it's there will be need to like trash out. I don't think this service is for that. So I'm just going to lay it bare. That is what has been reviewed about the character of God. And then we cannot begin to pick them, such that maybe subsequent teachings, um, maybe from feedback and all of that, we can know what to address and which parts to really deal with and all of that. Do you get? Okay. So last, um, the last time we gathered like this, we learned um, about how that the revelation of God to Moses was wrapped up in a supernatural experience. And I decided to just dwell a little bit on those supernatural experiences. I just did a broad thing with supernatural experiences and the gifts of the spirit, right? Um, the charismatic gifts, um, supernatural experiences like maybe people um, going into a vision or having an experience of the glory of God. It's not necessarily a spiritual gift, as it were. Maybe in worship, for example, um, the power of God comes heavily upon you and you're not able to stand, you know, those kind of things. Um, so I, I just talked broadly about this, right? And how that, what we saw in Moses was the example we saw in Moses and which was one of the reasons why we will not outrightly shut down supernatural experiences is because that within supernatural experiences are usually wrapped up revelation many times. All true scriptures, one, one thing we saw consistently is that from Abraham or from Noah, um, Moses, all of them, right? As they were coming, having as they were coming to have certain revelations of God, they are having those revelations wrapped up in an experience. So um, Jacob will see a ladder, a vision of a ladder with angels going up and coming down. For example, that's an experience, right? And then he wakes up and says that, "Oh, God was here, and I did not know." And then he names the place Bethel, right? And we just have. Scenarios like that through scriptures where 
we see that consistently people usually have experiences and even in the new testament in the act of apostles we see that people tend to have experiences of the supernatural experiences of the power of god such that it would be unfair for us to say that because they seem weird that we should shut them down right the best thing is to um know is to approach the way the scriptures teach us to approach is that clear enough there is a way scripture teaches us to approach, especially in the New Testament. So the two, the two ways I mentioned the last time, who remembers? Okay, so I mentioned that we should not quench, right? We should not quench the Spirit. Uh, we should earnestly desire. Um, so I want to just make a few clarifications so that um, we know that all of us, so we are on the same page. Um, first of all, what did I mean when I said that so when we're talking about not quenching, I mentioned that the weirdness of an experience is not what invalidates the experience and that it is the fruits that either um, validates or invalidates the experience, right? Now, what did I mean by weirdness? Because, you know, someone raised it last time and um, the person was talking about how that, you know, um, weirdness can invalidate an experience. But I, I guess we had different um, definitions of what weirdness is. So let me just quickly say now, now, what I mean by weirdness does not invalidate or validate the experience is your weirdness does not invalidate the experience is that um, how you feel about the experience is not what invalidates it. The weirdness I'm talking about is not, for example, when you know someone comes with a prophetic word in quotes and says that God wants to give you a, a child. And it says that um, you have to sleep with you so that you can transfer the power. That's some weirdness. But that's not the weirdness I'm talking about. That is error, right? I won't even call that weirdness. Or like, you are crazy, right? But the weirdness I'm talking about is the cringe you feel about the supernatural. That cringe you feel does not invalidate it. That's what I mean by the weirdness of it does not invalidate it. So someone comes and prophesies. Someone comes out and says that, oh, I have a word of prophecy. And I say, hey, they've come again. Oh, I want a prophecy. That cringe you feel, that weirdness you feel, is not what invalidates it. What invalidates it is the fruit of it. Do you get the, what you feel when someone comes and says that I saw an angel? Hey, they've come again. They are seeing angel. That thing you feel is not, does not make it wrong. <laughs> someone comes and says, I, I saw an angel last night. You know, you know, say feeling, oh, I saw an angel. That thing you are feeling does not mean the person did not see angel. Does not help make the person unsee the angel if the person actually saw an angel. Do you get? So you, what you feel about the supernatural does not invalidate the supernatural. What you feel about um, the gifts of the spirit is not what invalidates it. It is the fruit of it that either um, ticks it off as rights or invalidates it. Is that clear enough? So that's what I meant by the weirdness of an experience is not what's invalidated. That's what I meant. All right. I didn't mean that if someone comes and has an claims to have an experience that is contrary to God's word. That's in our um, 21st century parlance. You can say that, oh, you're being weird. Right. That's not the weirdness I'm talking about. Right. I'm not talking about people um, transferring the power of God through their sperm cells. I'm not talking about people um, who do all sorts of things. Right. I'm not talking about people. <laughs> I'm not talking about people that tell you prophetically to go and take a loan um, from the bank with your father and mother's property. 
so that something, something will happen. That's not what I'm talking about. That one is Satan. That's not weirdness. That is Satan and his cohorts at work. Amen? The second thing I would like to clarify is the second point I made about earnestly desiring. What did I mean by earnestly desiring? You know, one of the things I noticed is that um, even after we talked about earnestly desiring, right, people still want to be safe. So people still say things like, you know, earnestly desiring means that we are open to it. That we are, that's not what I'm saying. We are open to it. It's part of it. That we are open to it. That if God is doing something in our midst, we will not shut it down. Right? We are open to it. But that's not earnestly desiring. Um, earnestly desiring is earnestly desiring. A good example of earnestly desiring, a good example that we see in the book of Acts that comes readily to mind is Acts chapter 4. After Peter and, was it Peter and John? They, they flogged and then they went back to their own company, right? <laughs> Do you remember? When they went back to their own company, the Bible says that they prayed to God. They prayed fervently. And they were like, God, pray to heaven and earth. Behold their threatenings. Watch. It says, behold their threatening. And cause that your mighty hand is stretched out to work healings and miracles and all of that when we call upon your name. Maybe I should just read it. Acts chapter 4. So the Bible says that they, they prayed, and um, in verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Look at that. It is not unbiblical for us to pray that there will be miracles. You can pray that there will be miracles. Now, what were they praying for? In Acts chapter 1, the Bible says that, and you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall use it to do what? To bear witness. So it is for service, right? So when we are praying, that means that in our own time, what, what does that mean for our own context? Oh, Lord, um, Sika's conference is coming. As Sika's conference is coming, as we go about reaching out to people, we pray that there will be miracles to confirm your word. We pray that there will be miracles. We can earnestly desire that the Lord will work miracles among us. Now, we are not saying that it's a desire that will move the hand of God. We are saying that we can ask God. God is our Father, and we can pray to Him that God will, please, we want miracles in our midst. Oh, our church will be going for evangelism and all of that. Lord, we want that there will be signs and wonders to confirm the efficacy of your word. Amen. So, when I say earnestly desire, that's what I'm saying. So, I'm not, say, I'm not just saying that we are open to it. Like, that's cute. Anybody can hide on that we are open to it and still be, um, and still be a closet. <laughs> Do you get? We can actually easily hide on that. As, oh, earnestly desiring means that we are open to it. If God is doing anything, you know, we are just open to it. That's not it. Earnestly desire is actually earnestly desire. And we see different places like that in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 12 to 13 to 14, telling us consistently, Energy desire, desire the best gifts, um, desire that you may um, prophesy, right? Do not forbid tongues, um, desire that each one of you will prophesy, and those kind of things, right? So you can desire, you can actually desire. I dare say that you can actively pursue. Now, what I mean by actively pursue is everything I just said now. That's what I mean, right? And it is different from engineering it. It's different from when we gather together, you are playing keyboard, um, you... 
just say let's let's play some strings as we play some strings you know that you know the community of people you are with already you know that they will respond emotionally to the strings and you change the tone of your voice and you'll be saying the power of god is here right now as i lift up my hands all over this place seven people will fall we can engineer it and seven people will fall <laughs> but that's not what i'm saying that so that's not what i mean by earnestly desire do you understand that um okay so let me leave let me leave it at that um yeah so that i will not creep you out because i have other charismatic things i can say about that about the music part well it's not an emphasis in the scripture <laughs> but we can make a case for it from scripture all right so um in exodus chapter 34 which is a uh, scripture gonga Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7. So remember the story, right? Um, in the previous chapter, Moses had told, Lord, told God, God, show me your glory. And God said, that, ah, if you see me, you will die. But God now said, what I will do is that I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. Ha, so beautiful. And the next chapter, the very next chapter, the Bible says that the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet it does not leave the guilty unpunished. It punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Remember that last week also I explained that, Abby? So I don't have to, not last week, the last, last month, right? I explained what it means that um, it punishes, it takes, um, it punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents. Right? We looked at Ezekiel, we looked at Exodus, I think twenty or so, right? And we saw how that you know um, in Ezekiel, um, it says that this saying will no longer be said concerning the children of Israel that the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It now says that the children will suffer for their own sins. The fathers will suffer for their own sins. Right, so I was still telling this guy yesterday that so in um, what God was saying there to them is that if the children's teeth are set on edge, it is because they ate the same sour grapes that their fathers ate. Right, that is the that is the that is what is scriptural, not the saying of the Israelites. The saying of the Israelites is that the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So the children are suffering for the sins of the father. God is taking the sins of the father upon the children, right? But no, what God is saying is actually that if the children, if their teeth are set on edge, their teeth are set on edge because they have eaten the same sour grapes that their fathers ate. But if they did not eat the sour grapes that their fathers ate, they have no reason for their teeth to be set on edge. Is that clear? Awesome. So, let's look at some of these um, attributes of God, right? Let's just look at them broadly. Um, the first one is that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. And I also really focus on compassionate because that gracious just looks like compassionate. <laughs> the Lord is compassionate and gracious. The KJV says that the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. In Isaiah chapter 49, In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13 to 15. It says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into singing, 
you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God now responded. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And I have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. We see that in the character of God is something called compassion or mercy. This attribute of God calls us to see God as the, the way a mother tenderly cares for her child. The disposition of a mother to a child. In fact, God is now saying that even if that mother forgets her child, how much more me? I will not forget you. I am compassionate. It is his character. I'm going to show you something. In Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14. Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14. All right. Psalm 103, 13 to 14. So the Bible says, I love the scripture. It says that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Now, this is something beautiful about the compassion of God, about that character of God that is compassion, is that people do not need mercy or compassion if they are perfect. People don't need mercy or compassion if everything is going right with them. But the Bible says that he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so the same way a father pities his child is the same way God has compassion on those who fear him. So that means that God knows you. Permit me to say that he knows your head is not correct. <laughs> but that a child's head is not correct is not reason enough for the father to throw him away. Even if, according to Isaiah, even if the father throws him away, which is not God's intention for fatherhood, the Bible says that God said, I will not forget you. I will not leave you alone. I know your frame. I know you are dust. Amen? In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. So, you know, what we see from those two scriptures we read already is that you see a common trend that God wants us to approach him as our parents. So he uses examples of parents. He says as a mother tenderly cares for, his, for, her, for her child, right, um, and has compassion on that child, right, and does not forget that child. It's the same way I will not forget you. Not even if the mother forgets me, I will not forget you. Then he goes on to talk as a father. And he says that as a father pities his children, as a father has compassion on his children, it's the same way I, God has compassion on us. He wants us to approach him and see him that he is our father. He knows our father. He says that because he knows how we were formed, he remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are dust. So God, God's character makes him respond to our imperfections in mercy in compassion. So there's no way that God, you will turn to him. Remember, it says that um, um, he has mercy on those who fear him. Right? There's no way that we will turn to him and he will cast us away. 
because it will be in breaking character if we turn to him and he casts us away. Because that is not our God. Do you get? God wants you to come the way you are. Messed up, broken. Come. You will find grace to help in time of need. And that's what we're just about to read. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And verse 14 to 16. He says that, Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive what? Mercy. And find grace to help in our time of need. So God invites us constantly to that place where we can receive mercy. Because he knows our form. He knows that we are dust. And so he has opened the door wide and he's saying that, come, come and receive mercy. It's like God saying, come, let me pamper you. Bele, bele, you've been through a lot. Come and receive mercy. Come and receive mercy. Our God is merciful. Our God doesn't just do merciful things. Amen. Our God doesn't just do merciful things. He is merciful. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. You see, um, it is not, it is not, um, it is not just okay that all our view of God's mercy and compassion has to do with judgment. Because when we limit the mercy of God and his compassion to judgment, right? You know how that mercy prevails over judgment, right? When we limit it to judgment, it makes us think that God does merciful things. This is what I mean. So when it comes to judgments, right, um, all we have to do when we sin is to turn to him and repent, right, and he will have mercy. And we see promises of that in scripture. So let me, let me read one. In Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 6 to 9. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 6 to 9. It says, at the king's command... Couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, listen, says, people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. So you see this thing, eh? This thing we just read is also a character of God. That's when people will sin, he will judge. It's a character of God that we are getting there, right? Well, look at this. It says, do not be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Submit to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So in the context of judgments, we know that if we return to him, he will not cast us away. Over and over and over again, we are, 
people have been stiff-necked, stiff-necked over and over again. We make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And we keep going back over and over and over again. As many times as you go back, the Bible tells us that God doesn't just do merciful things. God is merciful. As a father has compassion on his children, it's the same way God has compassion on you. Because he knows your frame. He knows you are dust. Don't get it twisted. I am not saying that we'll, we'll keep taking his grace for granted. We'll keep doing stupid things. Maybe we could go have mercy. But you know that's what his mercy also does. We see in 1 John chapter 1. It says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful to forgive us. But he won't just forgive you alone. He will carry you like a mother will carry his child and he will clean you up. It says that he will purge you from every unrighteousness. He will cleanse you from every unrighteousness. So you definitely know that I'm not saying that we should just be doing stupid things. But I'm saying that God's disposition, who God is, is that he is merciful. And when we turn to him, he is willing to forgive. He will show mercy. Is that clear? Now, but you see, I'm not saying that don't just limit the mercy of God to just judgment. To what he does in judgment. Because you may be tempted to think that God is God does acts of mercy, right? But he doesn't just do acts of mercy. He is merciful. It is the core of him. He is, it is who he is. The, all the attributes of God describe his core, not his acts. His acts are, are outworkings of who he is. Do you get what I'm saying? Great. So, for example, because of the same mercy we are talking about, because of the same compassion we are talking about, Right? We see places where, for example, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 to 21, you can write it down. In Matthew 14, 13 to 21, the Bible tells us about how that a multitude came to Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on them. God became a man, right? He stepped into human suffering and he saw these sufferings. And the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on them and he healed the sick people among them. After healing them, guess what? He fed all of them. That is compassion. It is not just a thing that shows up in judgment. It is who he is. He is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. So that means that when life is doing you like this, you can always remember that I do not have a high priest who is not touched with the feelings of my infirmities. He was tempted just like I was and just like I am now, right? But he was without sin. And so I will boldly come to the throne of grace. So now that also helps you to know that coming to the throne of grace is not, is not only because um, you have sinned. It's also because your frame is dust. Do you get? Coming to the throne of grace is not only because you have sinned. Every time, we must be people who come to God, knowing that he is compassionate, knowing that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, knowing that he shows mercy. It is his character. It's not just what he does. Right? I don't know, for, for those who have had nice fathers and mothers, like people who, who, who were really nice people and were really kind people, and such that, such that they will discipline you one time, but within five minutes, they've called you again to pet you. That's mercy. That's compassion. Because they know your frame. So after they've beaten you because of what you've done wrong, they know that they are still the ones that will help you to become better versions of yourself. 
Amen. This is who God is. Our God is compassionate and gracious. Will a mother forget her own child? Even if she forgets, I will not forget you. That is compassion. That is who God is. Look at Mark chapter 10, 46 to 52. The Bible tells us that Jesus was going by and this blind man, Bartimaeus, started shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have compassion. Have mercy on me. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus did not turn him away. People turned him away. But he was appealing to something else. He was appealing to the mercy of God. He was appealing to the character of God. Have mercy on me. And Jesus healed him. And we see over and over and over again, especially in the ministry of Jesus, right? We'll see how that there will be people who are sick. And we'll say, we'll say that Jesus was moved with compassion and he healed them. Jesus was moved with compassion and he did this because it is his character. He is touched by the feelings of our infirmity. God is not just a distant um, being somewhere out there, right, who doesn't care about you. From the Old Testament, he has been telling people, see me as your father and your mother. Those two scriptures we read, that's basically what he's saying. See me as your father. See me as your mother. As a father has compassion on his children, right, so does the Lord have compassion on those who fear him. Because he knows your frame. He knows you are dust. He knows that you are dust. So all those times that you are beating yourself up about the dust of you, all those times that you are looking down on yourself because of your dust, he knows you are dust. He knows you are dust. This is our God. Amen. Hallelujah. The second character of God, after the fact that we've seen that he's compassionate and gracious, is that he is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. The first thing we must know is that God has anger. <laughs> He's just slow to it. <laughs> he will not be a just God if he does not have wrath. He has it. That's why he will not um, leave the guilty unpunished. He will judge the guilty. Praise God. He has wrath. But God also gives people time. He gives people time. So his wrath is not irrational. Everybody complains about, oh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh 10 chances. 10 plagues. 10 chances. Do you know what 10 chances is? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Before Ekukuma destroyed him. Hallelujah. In fact, one of the stories we know, the story of Noah, right? Preaching to people that, ah, God is coming, you know. God is coming, you know. Many people, some scholars, I checked it, right? We have different figures, but this is the average. Many scholars believe that Noah preached for at least 100 years. Preaching the same thing for 100 years, right? So, like I said, again, if you check it, you see different figures. You see some people say 120 years. Some people will say 90-something years. But the average is like 100 years, right? They believe that, um, that Noah preached for 100 years that God's judgment is coming. So that means that the flood did not just come, boom, like, oh yeah, finish everybody. No. The Bible tells us that this is the character of God. He is slow to anger. He is slow to wrath. 
in First Peter chapter three, verse nineteen to twenty. First Peter three nineteen to twenty. Don't ask me about spirits in prison. I want to answer you. <laughs> it says, after being made alive, he went and made proclamations to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago. When God did what? Waited patiently. Did you see that? When God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. It's the character of God. He is long-suffering towards us. Praise God. He is long-suffering. When it comes to God's judgment and all of that, long-suffering. God is long-suffering. So I'm sure that the same way, you know, people were saying in days of Noah, that, ah, there's no flood, there's a lie, nothing will happen, right? I'm sure that maybe at least two generations passed. If their life, um, if their, what's it called now? Lifespan. Is our generation's lifespan at least two generations past? Because that's 100 years. At least two generations past, and um, they were still, Noah will still be preaching. Mm. Floyd is coming, you know. Floyd is coming, you know. they'll be doing wedding. There's one song like that. What's he winning by you, Noah? Don't bear anything, you. Oh, but those things, we be just winning by the So they're saying that as it is in the days of Noah, that's how it is now. Many people are saying that Jesus will not come again, right? So um, that, that um, writer, the writer of that song now says that in their days they were doing weddings and they were doing different things, thinking that the flood would not come. But then the flood eventually came, right? And that's how it is now also. That the reason why Jesus has not come now is because of God's character. God is long-suffering. And it is confirmed in Scripture, right? So I'm not just saying this. But, oh, the reason why Jesus has not come is long-suffering. <laughs> it is long-suffering. So look at this. In... Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Let me read from verse 8. It says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to what? To perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God doesn't want people to perish. So, when God revealed himself to Moses, he said, I am slow to anger. I don't want people to perish. Right? In verse, verse 15, you now see the reason why God is slow to anger. In verse 15, it says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means what? Salvation. The KJV says that the, the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. That means that the reason why the Lord, the reason why the Lord is patient is slow to anger, is so that perhaps many will come to repentance. Amen? Is so that many will come to repentance. So God is slow to anger. We've said it. God is compassionate and gracious. God is slow to anger. Concerning compassion, I want to say something. You know that place in scripture that says that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know, there's a way, there's a way that we can lean into fatalism, out that we think that that's all there is to it, that, you know, because God is sovereign and we only submit to the sovereignty of God, which is what we do, right? And so, you only have mercy on whom we will have mercy on. But we also see other places where it says that we should turn to him for mercy, we should come to the throne of grace and we obtain mercy. It's important that we are able to hold these things in our mind, knowing that in the, 
in the God states, in that God state, we cannot comprehend beyond what has been revealed to us. And this is what has been revealed to us. And in his sovereignty, he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy on. Right? But we also know that he invites us to come to his throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in, in time of need. So we must use hold it, knowing that God is sovereign and at the same time, he allows us to come of our own free will that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Of course, 100% man, 100% God. <laughs> and, you know, it will always look like a paradox and it will never stop, right? Why? Because you are not God. You know, it's just like the um, 2D, 3D illustration that Pisam always gives us that um, an organism in 2D cannot comprehend height, cannot comprehend 3D, right? So all it probably knows is length and breadth, but cannot comprehend height. And if, an organism in 3D, right, if there's a fourth dimension, can't comprehend it. Like we know, we know that we are, all we know is this three dimension. But what if there's a fourth dimension, right? We can't comprehend this. But if there is a being that lives in the fourth dimension, that understands the fourth dimension, it will say things that we'll never be able to comprehend. An example of that is how that in the sovereignty of God, it will have mercy on whom we will have mercy on, and you have compassion on whom we will have compassion on. And at the same time, he invites us to come and obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. At the same time, he tells us that when we turn to him, he will have compassion on us. Hallelujah. He is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. Finally, Ish, the named ones, he abounds in love and faithfulness. He abounds in love and faithfulness. I love the word faithfulness in that place, in that um, Exodus 34. Is the, is the Hebrew word emeth. Emeth. Now, emeth does not mean telling the truth. You know, when you say that someone is faithful, maybe I say, oh, maybe he's, he's faithful. <laughs> he tells the truth or something. I don't know. But emeth actually speaks to God's reliability, his stability, his continuance, him being the rock of ages. When we say that God is faithful, we are saying that God is stable, reliable, consistent. He doesn't break character. It is who he is. He is faithful. God's faithfulness, you know, doesn't just mean that God tells the truth. It is that God is reliable and his character is consistent. One scripture that did it for me is that same 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. He says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is reliable, he is consistent, he is just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He now says that if we claim we do not have sin, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So this is one thing we know about God. He is consistent. You can rely on him. You can rely on him. His name is a strong tower. The righteous run in and they are safe. He's consistent. Hallelujah. The Lord is faithful. And I, I hope that it will make sense that as you read your Bible and you begin to see that the Bible says that God is faithful. 
You are not just seeing it as, oh, God is faithful. He says the truth. His word never fails. Ojubelo is consistent. He is the rock of ages. He is faithful. Do you get? He is merciful. He doesn't just do merciful things. He is merciful. That's the core of his character. He is faithful. He doesn't just express faithfulness in things. He is faithful, right? He is gracious. He is slow to anger. So it's not just that, oh, I'm, I'm tolerating them. He's not just tolerating people. He's actually slow to anger. That is who he is. Do you get? You know that there's a way that you may not be slow to anger, but you just learn to tolerate people that are tolerating. But there are some people that... So you're tolerating people can now have different reasons. So for some people, it's just that I'm tolerating you because you're attending the same church. If not, you will call it. So if you're not attending the same church, you slap the person now. You beat the person up. But God is not like that. It is his character. He is slow to anger. He will want the Israelites over and over and over again. He will come and carry you people if you don't repent. He will come and carry you people if you don't repent. Last, last, they will come and carry them. But they will never say that he didn't want them. They dare not. They will never say that he didn't want them. They will never say it, that God did not tell them that, ah, this thing you people are doing, you need to repent. This thing you people are doing, stop it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Next thing. The Assyrians are coming. So it is who God is. And concerning his character, that's why, you know, like I said the other time, that when it comes to the mercy of God, for example, we don't need, we actually didn't need Jesus to die, right, for maybe for sick bodies to be healed and all of that. Why? Because it is his character to show compassion. So that when he was even walking upon the face of the earth, he saw people, showed compassion, and healed their diseases. I was having a conversation with someone. That's, and this is one of those questions, right? If it is his character to show compassion, right? And in his compassion, apart from forgiving sins, he also heals diseases. Why is he not healing everybody? She is not compassionate again. <laughs> Do you get? But one thing I know is this, that because... We know already from scripture that the answer to the condition of this world is not even the healing. So God will step into human suffering and show you that I'm with you. God will step into human suffering, right? Show you that I'm with you, right? Um, he will show you his word from his word. And then sometimes in experiences, he will heal sick bodies. He will heal sick people, right? I gave the example of the um, pool of Bethsaida. Is it pool of Bethsaida now? Yeah, and then he, he got there and he saw one man and he approached him and he healed him. But the other sick people were there too. The other sick people were there too, right? But this now takes us to another character of God called faithfulness. How that, even if I don't get healed, I know that God is steadfast, consistent, the rock of ages, right? And I can rely on his character. I can rely on him. How can I rely on him? It's not just blind reliance. I can look at scripture and see from Romans chapter 8 that the answer to sicknesses, right, is what? What's the answer to sicknesses and diseases? The final, God's final answer that, oh yeah, check up, is the redemption of our bodies. So that means that if I pray for you now, you had malaria, I pray for you, you get huge. You must get to bite you next week. You're going to catch the malaria again. 
So even if, whether I pray for you or not, the final answer to your sicknesses, to the infirmities of your body, is the resurrection. Guess what? In Hebrews chapter 11, all those people were not looking forward to immediate answers. The Bible says that they were looking for a city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. It says that if they had considered the city where they came out from, they would have had the opportunity to go back. So they didn't even bother considering the city they came out from. It said that they were looking forward to another city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God's final answer to the sufferings of this world. The Bible says that the whole creation is subject to vanity in hope. So we can look to him. We can wait for him. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 3 verse, is it Philippians now? Philippians 3.20. That our citizenship is in heaven. Is it Philippians? Sorry, I don't know. I know, but I cannot remember right now. I'm on your seat. So, <laughs> the Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're not just waiting for him that, oh, Father Christmas is coming. He says that he is coming to change our vile bodies to conform to his glorious body. So the final answer to sicknesses and diseases has been stated clearly. God is faithful to his word. His faithfulness is that he is steadfast. He doesn't shake like this, shake like this. So you can look and say that, eh, so you pray, um, this person gets healed of his sickness, but this person doesn't get healed of this person eventually dies. So you're no longer faithful. doesn't change anything. Because he remains faithful. We have an answer to that. Like, we literally have an answer to that. Do you get? Like, we are not even formulating answers. We are not trying to, like, have answers. We have answers to that. And we have people who have lived in history, who lived their lives, not waiting for earthly rewards for service to God, but heavenly rewards. For example, Moses. Moses could have waited, waited in Egypt to become the next Pharaoh. And then when he becomes the next Pharaoh, he will liberate the Israelites. That's very easy. Like, why did he have to go into the wilderness? There was no point. Right? But the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Moses esteemed the sufferings of Christ of greater treasure than the riches of Egypt. They were looking forward to something. They were not looking for immediate rewards. That's why he didn't die so that you have money. That one is immediate reward now, like quick fix. Just didn't die for quick fixes. I like it. What do you get? God is consistent though. At least based on everything he has revealed to us in his character, it's consistent. Everything he has revealed to us. The ones that our brain cannot carry, we just say, Allah Akbar. Over to you, over to you, boss. For example, um, when we talk about the Trinity. My brain cannot comprehend this. I'm not going to stress myself. I'll just tell you what has been reviewed. There are three persons with the same substance. Don't stress me. And I will not stress you. If I can stress you, if you want me to stress you. Right? And the same thing with things like, oh, I mean, God is so good. Why did this person get healed and this person did not get healed? Remember what I said about all that. If there's a fourth dimension and there's a being that lives in that fourth dimension, he has far greater perspectives than we will ever have. Than we will ever have. Amen. I think the last thing we need to look at 
I really want us to finish today and just let it get so that everything else that will be happening will be in house conversations and people asking that. Ah, Brother Shea, you said something. Because let me just report to these people online. They are always stressing me. Anytime I preach, they stress me. They ask me questions I don't know. <laughs> but I try. So there's that place, right? Maybe I'll just ask one person and then we'll go home and start busting our brains about it. So it says that after he has, um, the Lord had told Moses that he's compassionate and gracious, um, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents. It is easy to see. But look at that. It says that he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Isn't that like contradictory? He forgives wickedness. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Do you want to talk about this? Or we should just be going home and go and think about it. Yeah, ah, wait, don't say yet. I'll I'll give Glory the mic. First John two, first John two from verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So yes, um, um, the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, and that through Christ Jesus. So Christ bore the, the just consequence of our sins. So God doesn't just let us go like, hey, moon not just a go. Um, somebody actually paid the price. Thanks, so. So that's actually is basically, right? That someone actually pays the price for our sins. So God actually doesn't still leave the guilty unpunished. For our sins, right? We know from scripture that someone can take our place. So Jesus took our place. And when he took our place, because someone had taken our place, we could receive forgiveness of sins. Do you get? Because the forgiveness did not just come free of child, like, oh yeah, eh, you, you've killed people, I'll be, I'll be going. It, it's, it's not even justice. Do you get? So, someone takes my place and I identify with what he has done. So, in identifying with what he has done, what happens is that God has, um, what's the word now? God has imputed my sin upon him. And that's what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, in the character of God, God will forgive wickedness and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So how God, for, God forgives wickedness and not leaving the guilty unpunished, the balance of that is what is called atonement. Is the atonement. What makes that statement true? And what we see from the Old Testament to the New, from the type in the Old Testament to the realities in the New, is the atonement. So now, time to go and be thinking about it, right? Okay, so I'm done today. I think I'm actually done with this topic. So, I may come back again to go deeper, if the Lord wills. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at this excellent church. God bless you.